how many of you ever had to deal with phones with no caller ID? Oh, good. Those of you who were born in 1998 or something like that, you have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> what was the worst thing about no caller ID? Salespeople. Salespeople. What? Creepy callers. Remember prank calling? So much more fun before they knew it was you. <laughs> my, uh, my, we, used to call, we used to do a lot of prank calls, but my mom's big thing when the phone rang is we'd all be sitting around and she'd go, oh, I wonder who that could be. And my dad would go, answer it, find out. <laughs> and then one of us would run to the phone and, and answer it, and she'd be like guiding our conversation, like, ask who it is, ask who it is, may I ask who's, may I ask who's calling, and we're supposed to say that. And just to get on her nerves, we wouldn't. And, and we'd say, it's for you. Who is it? I don't know. <laughs> the worst thing that happened was star, remember star six, seven, where they can instantly call you back? That was bad, especially with prank calling. But then caller ID came. And the worst thing with caller ID now is I can make a phone call. Uh, I, it's happened. Maybe one or two of you in the room. I'll actually use my phone for what it's used for, a phone. And I'll make a call on it instead of a text. And then I've seen you do this. You pick up the phone, you see it's me, and you go like that. <laughs> I'm watching you. Ignore me. If caller ID was also the hard part about not having caller ID, someone would call, and this has been talked about before, I'm sure, and they would always do the, hey, it's me. I don't know who me is. Uh, keep talking, let me, have, let me get some more things. They expect you to know who the voice is on the other side. It's me. The only people I knew were my parents and my brother and my grandpa because he had a really raspy voice that was awesome. Everyone else, I'd just play along. Oh, how are you? Good, good to talk to you. The only way that you can really find out who me was was if you spent some time with it with that voice, with that person, you start to recognize it because the more you learn that person's voice, you learn how they say words, you learn their, their voice tones, you start to recognize the voice and before they even say, hey, it's me, it's on the ha of hey, you go, oh, it's you. We've done that, Carrie's called a couple times in uh, the office or something like that and I pick up the phone and as soon as she opens her mouth and says a word, I know who it is. How many of you have friends like that, family like that? You, if it's your spouse, that better be that kind of person where you know their voice before you even really hear it. Knowing someone's voice is a byproduct of spending a lot of time with that person. And the same is true for knowing God's voice. Many of us want to know what he sounds like. Some of, some of you have heard him in audible voices, which is awesome. I'm jealous of you. Though some of, there's some others who have the inner quiet voice. They know exactly what it sounds like when God's trying to say something. Others of you have this feeling or this nudge. You know God's moving in you when certain things happen. But you've learned to realize that kind of voice. And a lot of times that comes from spending a lot of time with God. And how he speaks to you. He speaks to everybody a little bit differently. There's no cookie cutter way. This is how God speaks. And this is the only way God speaks. One of the ways we learn God's voice and, and being able to hear him is through the act of solitude. 
Solitude is, we're talking about solitude and hospitality. We have one more week in this sustainable faith series that we've been in. Next week, we'll hear how to establish a rule of life where we can incorporate all of these in some sort of sustainable way of living. Today, we talk about solitude. We breathe in solitude. You inhale solitude, and then you exhale hospitality. It's in solitude. It plays a major role in developing your uh, sustainable faith because it's through solitude, especially time alone with God, where you start to learn the sound of his voice and mainly the sound of his voice above all the other noise that's in our world. Solitude for introverts sounds like heaven. Ah, I can be by myself, but it's not like that kind of solitude. It's not a solitude where you can be on your device or play around with your iPad. It's not a solitude where you curl up with a book or a solitude where you watch Netflix all day long and binge Stranger Things too. It's that's not this kind of solitude. Solitude for extroverts sounds like a living hell because you're by yourself. The solitude that, we're, that we speak about in scripture, the solitude for establishing the rule of life is difficult because it's a kind of solitude where everything is put away. The phone is away, you're, you're, you're not talking to anybody, you don't have headphones in where the distractions come, it's you and your thoughts and God. And for some, me included, that can be terrifying Because when there's no voices to distract you, you start to learn and you start to see those places in your life, in your thoughts that are both good and you're excited about, but then you start to see those places in your life where there might be shame. Regret starts coming in because we've actually stopped and now you're alone with who you are. Uh, But through solitude, is where we begin to see God's truth. If we look closely, most of, most of our communication with God is spent with all of us talking. God, 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 this, 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 this. I want this, I want this. How many of you have actually stopped to let God get a word in edgewise? We do a lot of hearing with God. We do a lot of, I heard God say this, but we don't do a lot of listening with God. We all have relationships where uh, maybe, well, it happened to me on the phone on Wednesday, and it wasn't anybody here. They called, and I'm, list- I'm hearing them talk, but I have no idea what this person is saying. Have you ever been in a conversation like that? You're not listening. Your mind's over here. Your mind's over there. You're on to other things. Sometimes we do that with God. He's talking to us. He's speaking to us. We might be hearing it, but we're not listening to what he's saying. We're not paying close attention. One of my favorite scriptures or stories in scripture is a story of Elijah on, uh, on Mount Carmel. Uh, up until this point, Elijah went to King Ahab in, in 1 Kings, and he says, Ahab, Jezebel, because of the sin of Israel, it's no longer, it's not going to rain until God says so. And for them, not raining for that, until not raining was a bad thing. It was an agrarian culture. They needed the rain for the farms and everything. And he goes to Ahab and say, because you are serving Baal and Asherah, false gods of that day, and not Yahweh, rain's going to stop. And it stopped for three and a half years. And then he goes, we think it's bad when rain doesn't come for three and a half months this past summer. 
three and a half years of drought. It's like California all the time. And so he goes away for three and a half years. Ahab and Jezebel try and find him, send search parties out. They try and round up all the prophets of Yahweh and kill them, trying to find out if they know where Elijah is. And finally, three and a half years later, Elijah hears from God and says, Elijah, go tell King Ahab I'm going to make it rain. Not like make it rain like they do in the around here. I'm going to make it rain, physical rain. I'm going to bring rain back. And in order to prove his point, Elijah wants to make a spectacle of it. He comes, he sends word to the messenger of, of, uh, for Ahab, Obadiah, who was a Christ follower. And, and he said, where have you been? If I tell Ahab that you're here and you're not here, it's going to be bad news for me. I've hidden other prophets. Do you want me to hide you? And Elijah says, no, tell Ahab I'm here. But do this other thing. Get 400 prophets of Baal and the 450 prophets of Asherah and have them meet me on Mount Carmel. And then he did the West Side Story thing. <laughs> We're going to fight. And it's this standoff that, that you have between the prophets of Baal and the Asherah, all 850 of them against Elijah. And the story picks up and he says, here's the deal, build your altar, slice up your bowl, do whatever you do to do you and your worship, and only call on your God to light the fire. Don't touch the lighter, that's not your job. The prophets of Baal and Asherah say, okay, came on, and they start. And they go for hours. And I love the picture. If you look in 1 Kings 17, the picture of Elijah is he's sitting back in his chair and he's got his LaCroix and, and he's leaning back and he's watching all of this take place. And then he starts talking trash. He says, maybe you should shout a little bit louder. And they try and shout louder. He says, maybe your God is busy. If you translate busy, it says, maybe your God's in the restroom and he can't hear you. Maybe he's preoccupied, and, and he starts just shouting. This is the first bit of trash talking we see in scripture, and it's beautiful for someone like me. Uh, it's a spiritual gift of Elijah. And then, after hours of this happening, noon comes. Elijah stands up, begins to stretch out. It's his turn. And he says, uh, uh, and he grabs 12 stones and he starts building his altar. 12 stones uh, about the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. They're all uh, represented and he's rebuilding it. So this was already there. He's dusting it off. He takes a, he starts digging a trench all around the, the base of the altar, big enough to pack 24 pounds of grain in there. And so it's deep, and he digs it around the altar, and then he commands them. He says uh, in 1 Kings 17, he says, fill large jugs of, I'm sorry, 1 Kings 18, fill large jugs of water and pour them on the offering of wood. And then in verse 34, he says, do it again. And then he, and they did it again. In verse 34, do it again. And he ordered them, and they did it a third time, so much that the water ran down the side of the altar and filled the trench. And at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Now remember, it's him against 850, and all 850 of them are trying to kill him. They want him dead. And the deal was, if God lights this altar, I win. 
If God doesn't light this altar, I'm toast. And so he calls out to God. He said, Lord, the God of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and all that you've done, and have done all the things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you are, you are the Lord, our God, and you are turning their hearts back to you again. And then verse 38, then fire fell, then, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up all the water in the trench. And then verse 39, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate, prostrate and cried. Wow, that was bad. The Lord. I was wondering, do I just let it go? Should get that checked. Um, See what happens when I play bass? Bad, bad things. The Lord, he is God. Focus on Jesus here, people. Come on. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So with the odds stacked against him, Elijah calls out and God comes and sends down the fire and burns everything. Wouldn't you have loved to see that that day? Just to see the faces of all 850 go, uh-oh, we're toast. Some of us would love it for God to speak to us in fire coming down from heaven, wouldn't we? This is what we expect when we, we ask God to talk. This is the response that we want. We want fireworks. We want neon signs. We want loud, booming voices. And then we read stories like this or in other places in the, in the scriptures, and we expect that to happen. And when, they doesn't, when it doesn't happen, we get disappointed. And then we stop listening. It's amazing when God speaks like this, but it's not sustainable. In fact, speaking like this would make it very hard for to have a sustainable relationship with him. It's like having an intimate conversation from across the room, shouting, hey, Carrie, let's talk about that thing that we, uh, that pr- it, does, it doesn't work out that way. It's not a close conversation. God will yell, will, will, will bring people's attention. He does that. But it doesn't mean that he always wants to talk like that. And when he doesn't, it doesn't mean that he's absent. And there's no reason for us to be discouraged. God is always speaking. But perhaps we're too busy looking for the wrong kind of voice. And we're not really listening to it. Elijah heard God speak. Everybody on that hill that day heard God speak and they fell down. Elijah got what he was wanting. Lord God, move. Bring down your fire. The fire fell. Everyone fell on the ground worshiping. He got exactly what he wanted. And some of us, we've been in a place like Elijah. We've seen God move in mighty ways. We've seen people respond to him. Maybe you have a story, but now everything's gone silent. Perhaps you've asked God to move, and then you still, maybe you've asked him to move and you haven't heard anything in return. All you hear is the crickets or your own thoughts. And because he didn't move in a powerful way, you think he's not moving at all. Hearing God and listening to God 
are a few different things. Because the next chapter, here's what happens. Elijah does this. God moved. He heard God happen. Everybody heard God that day. But Elijah wasn't listening, was he? The next chapter comes along, and Elijah's, Elijah goes running. He's had this experience, but now he's running for his life again. God proved that he is the God of Israel. Everybody pales in comparison to him. But now Elijah's scared. He had no reason to be afraid. But he's running. And he runs for a few days. And he ends up hiding in a cave. And many authors think that he was actually, he found Mount Sinai from where where God met the people of Israel for the first time in Exodus. And he was hiding on Mount Sinai. But it's in this place where Elijah moves from hearing to listening, and the only way he can do that is he assumes a posture of listening. He fled. He was afraid he was going to get killed. And then in 1 Kings 19, verse 9, Craig, thank you for keeping up with me. In 1 Kings 19, verse 9, he went into a cave and he spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. Elijah says to God, I'm done. I've done everything you've asked me, and now they're still trying to kill me. Elijah wasn't listening to anything that had happened in the previous chapter, was he? He found out that there were hundreds hiding from Obadiah. He found out that God was able to protect him against one verses 850. He wasn't really listening. And then the Lord says to him in verse 11, go outside and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for I'm about to pass by. Then a great powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. The Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. All of these things were places where he thought God was going to be. The big, loud, booming voices, the the earthquakes, the fires, these signs of power are where he thought God was going to be. But God doesn't always talk in the miraculous. And then after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood the mouth of the cave. The word for whisper there is the Hebrew word for hush. In both of these events, we see how God speaks. To some people, God speaks very, very loudly, burning altars and doing the miraculous. And for other people, the voice is extremely different. God will talk loud to people who don't know him. He'll get their attention. My family has uh, missionaries in Nepal, and they talk about when they go plant churches in various towns, they go in and they, they know that they're supposed to plant a church when something miraculous happens because everyone goes, what? God gets their attention with a healing or some kind of event that takes place. And all of a sudden, people are listening. God's got their attention. But it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes God wants to whisper to you. Elijah was looking for God in the big and the powerful, but how does God communicate to him? In a whisper. When you're always listening 
for the shout, very rarely do you ever hear a whisper. Whispers take time for us to slow down and actually listen. God will shout at his enemies, but he will whisper to his friends. He whispers to, the, to us. And the only way that we are able to hear his voice or hear the whisper is if we would only slow down long enough to hear it. That's why solitude is so important for your faith. Because it puts you in a place where you are listening, where things can be heard, where God is not shouting to you. You're God's friend. Paul says that we are no longer enemies. We are friends. Jesus says, I have called you friends. We are God's friends. He knows us. There's a relationship with us. He whispers to us. You don't go up to strangers and whisper in their ear, do you? If you do, that's weird. <laughs> you whisper to someone you know. You're close enough to whisper to them. God's relations to us is he wants to whisper to you like he whispered to Elisha that day. He doesn't always want to shout. He doesn't always want to use his outside voice. He wants the relationship to be close close enough to whisper. And when someone whispers to you, you know the voice because there's a relationship there and you can pick that voice up from anywhere in the crowd because it's a whisper and you're familiar with it. One of my favorite dogs growing up was the, our dog Tugger. Uh, he was a black lab and, and he was just, he was a fun dog. And he had this thing where he loved to chase ducks because that's what, I guess, retrievers, lab retrievers do. And so we'd go walking in a park, and he'd look over, and he'd start seeing these ducks, and you can see him just getting so excited. Starts to bounce, he's looking over, he's, he's wrestling, it's a 100-pound thing, and we're trying to hold him back. And he would oftentimes take off and go get the ducks, or try. He'd go into the water, and it, it was awesome. Sometimes I just encouraged him just to see what the ducks would do. They're not real birds, so it doesn't matter. And, but as Tugger went into the lake where the ducks were, there was always something wrong with him. He'd get sick when he came out or he'd step on a fish hook. It wasn't the cleanest of waters. And, and so I wouldn't want him to always go running off into the lake. Sometimes he'd knock over children on the way over. It wasn't always a good thing. So the trick was to get Tugger to hear my voice and not go after the ducks. So how do we do that with a 100-pound retriever, or black lab retriever, over time, right? Over time in training, as Tugger grew up, he started to recognize my voice, and he realized that, he, that I wanted the good things for him. I didn't want him to go get an infection. And so I would hold him on a leash as we were walking, and sometimes he'd take off, and I'd say, no, Tugger, no ducks today. Sorry, let's keep going. But as the time came and as he heard my voice, as he trusted the voice, I could take him off the leash and we could be walking in the park and he'd see the ducks and he'd perk up because it's instinct. And then all I'd have to say to him was, not today, no ducks. And he'd keep walking. If somebody else would take him for a walk and they'd go by the ducks and they'd say no ducks, it wouldn't matter. He didn't know their voice. Tugger can be halfway uh, to the ducks and I can shout out, no, Tugger, and he'd stop. Why? He knew my voice. 
He spent so much time with the voice, probably other times where he was being yelled at for chewing up the pool or whatever, that he knew the voice and he responded to my voice. The same is true for us. The more that we spend time with Jesus in solitude, away from everything, the more we'd hear God's voice when we're surrounded by the noise. And the more we'd be able to hear that he's speaking to us. The practice of solitude is full of possibility when it comes to deepening your relationship with God. Because it's there where you learn that God is with you and you're able to withstand all of the external events that happens. But it never fails. The more busy we are, the more people that need our attention, the more we're in demand, the less that we are able to spend time in solitude. It happens in all of our lives. It happened in Jesus' life. In, uh, in, in the Gospels, it says this uh, in, in Luke. Don't bother finding it, and I'll read it from here, Craig. In verse 32, he says, after sunset, now this is Mark, I'm sorry, Mark 1.32. After the sunset, the people brought Jesus and all that were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many of those from various diseases. He drove out many demons but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. The very next day, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus' life picked up. People were starting to recognize who he was. They were hearing things. He heals. He's curing demons. Uh, He turned water into wine. This guy's someone we need to, so there's a line to see him. Jesus does something. The very next morning, he leaves. He goes to a solitary place. The word in Greek means a place where you're not counting on seeing anyone or having any resources to help you along the way. The word solitary brings up this idea of desert, which is something that the people that would have read this would have thought, oh, kind of like in Exodus where they were in the desert and all they had to rely on was God's voice. We see Jesus retreating to these places, places of wilderness where it was just he and God. For Jesus, the wilderness was not this place of of scarcity. It wasn't this place where he was just sitting on a rock, lonely. Solitude is not loneliness. For him, it was a place where he met God and he would hear God's voice and he would be filled up. And this was a regular practice for him. And if it was a regular practice for him and he literally had people pounding on his door to see him, why can't it be a regular practice for us? What's stopping us from spending some time in solitude? In Luke 5.16, it says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This wasn't something that he would do one time. It was something that he did, uh, that he incorporated it into the rest of his life. If you want to hear God speak, if you want to hear his voice, you need to meet with him or we need to meet with him in a place where we can actually listen to him. Jesus says this, and I'll read from the message message translation in Matthew 6. Find a quiet, secluded place where you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. When you do, the focus will shift from you to God and you'll be able to sense his grace. Here's the thing. 
you might not might you might find that you aren't the only one who's waiting on God. In fact, you probably won't be the one who's waiting on God. And what you will find is that in those silent solitude of a place, God's actually waiting on you. He wants to meet with you. He wants to know you well. He wants to whisper to you instead of yelling from across the room. It's in solitude where we learn the voice of God and we're able to hear him above all the other noise in our world. Find a place where we can hear God's voice, where you can hear God's voice. In solitude, you'll learn it. Here's some tips for solitude. It's scary, so keep it small. Start with 10 minutes if you're afraid. Start by yourself. Start on a five-minute walk alone, no music. God, I'm here. I want to meet with you. Speak to me. Start small, baby steps. Make it special. Make it a rhythm. Make it a special place where you go and pray. And when you make it a rhythm, you make it specific. This is the place where I meet with God. Keep it regular. Practice. Do it over and over and over again. Unplug. Do not disturb features, a great feature. Maybe take your watch off, even if it's a time watch. Doesn't do anything but tell time. Take your watch off. Unplug. Remove as many distractions from you as possible. And then journal. What'd you hear? Did you hear God speak? Keep track of what songs came to your brain. Keep track of what thoughts you had. Sometimes God will use those to get your attention. Keep track of what you thought of when you're doing, uh, when you're doing this. God will speak to you in various ways. Sometimes it's a picture, sometimes it's a phrase, sometimes it's a voice, sometimes it's a feeling. Keep track, journal. It takes time. But in solitude, we begin to hear the voice of God. And in solitude, we experience something of God that we should be sharing with others. In solitude, where we go into these quiet places, we realize that we're not the ones waiting on God. God's waiting on us. And in solitude, we find and we experience God's hospitality. God's hospitable in these places where there's nobody else for us. He meets us there. He takes care of us there. He whispers to us there. We experience God's hospitality. So when we inhale solitude, we can breathe out hospitality. And Thursday is the perfect place for us to try this, right? Hospitality. Being kind to the people. We think of hospitality in this way. We think the hospitality is entertaining. We think that it's throwing these elaborate parties, having the best meals, uh, and, and being the show off, having the perfect entertaining house. But solitude is not that way. That's not the, so uh, I'm sorry, hospitality is not that way. Hospitality is different. Shauna Nyquist writes this uh, when we attach performance to hospitality, uh, hospitality is not performance. Hospitality is creating space, not taking the stage. Hospitality is being with and not showing off. When you spend time with God, you are with him. When we come out of that, we are hospitable to people around us. We're not showing off to them. We're not, we're not trying to impress. We're simply with, next to, we're inviting the early Christians practiced this, the hospitality. In Romans 12, it says, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. 
In Hebrews 13, 2, it says, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, uh, some have, have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing. It's hearkening back on an experience that Abraham had when people came to his door. He invited them in, made them a meal, made them comfortable, even though they were different from who he was and they turned out to be angels. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, practice hospitality, bring people in, take care of them, be inviting, and you never really know who you'll be entertaining that day. The word for hospitality uh, is, is unique, and, and we'll wrap up because I'm running out of time and we got food to eat downstairs. The word for hospitality is the word philoxenia. Xenia is different. We've heard of the word xenophobia, especially nowadays, right? Fear of the different. Fear of the other. The word used for hospitality here is philoxenia. Philadelphia, brotherly love, philo, friendship, love. Philoxenia, love for the person who's not like you. Practice love for the stranger, is what the author is saying here in Hebrews. It, it, it's, it's this idea of in every interaction you have with anybody or anybody, it's you're showing them a common grace. It's a kind word. It doesn't have to be a flashy thing. It's kindness. It's, it's being nice over a meal. It's, it's over a cup of coffee. It's, maybe it's a simple stranger in the street it's the mundane details of your life where you interact with somebody and you communicate to them the grace that you've experienced in solitude. You, experience, you express to them that same grace. But it has a deeper meaning too. You never just eat dinner with friends. There's never just an ordinary dinner. Every interaction you have is a place where you can have solitude. There are no ordinary people. Every place that you have is a place where you can, ex you can express hospitality. In other words, the people who are most unlike you are the people you can express solitude. Man, I'm getting those mixed up today. Are the people that you can express hospitality to. <laughs> so when you sit down at the Thanksgiving table, what aren't you supposed to talk about? Politics and religion, right? because everybody's different than you are. Everybody has a different opinion. But what's hospitality show in that place? Grace. When you're sitting across from Uncle So-and-so or Grandpa Steve or whoever it is, and they're spouting off everything that you disagree with, your temptation is to be what? Defensive. Temptation is to run and hide. Your temptation is to get angry. But what's hospitality show? grace. It shows kindness for the people who aren't the same as you. It's a love for the other person. You can disagree with somebody and still love them. In fact, it's encouraged. You can disagree with somebody. You cannot like what they do, and you can still show them hospitality. And then when you get so frustrated with them, go experience solitude. Then come back for hospitality. Solitude and hospitality, we breathe one, we exhale the other. This week, especially in these coming months, uh, with the schedules picking up, with Christmas and Thanksgiving and New Year's, 
May you find the time to get away and hear God's voice, but may you also find the hospitality in your heart for the person across from you who's different than you are. Some tips for hospitality. Be present over be performing. Be gracious over being right, which is so hard to do. You have two ears, one mouth. Listen, then talk. Find out where this opinion comes from. Ask questions. Listen more than talking. And then find the good in every interaction you have. Look for the positive. Look for the movement of God in people's hearts. Look and listen for the voice of God in your own so you can find the voice of God in theirs. We breathe in solitude. We breathe out hospitality. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in those places where we think you're silent, you're actually speaking. And so, Lord, may we stop today for just a moment and find you in silence. Lord, may you speak to us in the quiet. Jesus, you whisper to your friends, so may we hear your whispers. It's in solitude where you found power, may we find the same power that you did. May we wait on you rather than rushing ahead with our own agenda and our own words and our own ways. May we wait and be quiet for you to move first and then respond with that where we find you in the solitude, where we experience your hospitality, may we express that hospitality to others, even when they're difficult, even when we really don't get along with them, even though they're different from us, Lord. May we find the love of the other that you expressed in your ministry. Will you give us the grace? And then may we show that grace to other people. It's in your name we pray, amen.